Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie Weissman, the editor in chief here at Modern Retail. And uh, this week's episode is going to be a little different from other ones. Uh, the year's coming to a close, and I thought I would bring on my esteemed colleagues to talk about uh, the things they know best retail. And bringing on two reporters from the Modern Retail team, Anna Hensel and Michael Waters. And we're going to talk just both about a sort of retrospective, what's happened in the past, what they were focusing on, what was interesting or sad, all that jazz. And then also what we're looking for in towards in the future. First, I'd like to bring on Anna. Anna, how's it going? Hi, it's going well, Kale. Thank you for bringing me on for this. Yeah, thanks for joining. Um, for for those that don't know or, you know, maybe have read our stories but not noticed the bylines, why don't you just talk a little bit about sort of who you are, the reporting you do, uh, you know, you, how how you've come to modern retail over the last few years. Yeah, so I am the startups editor for Modern Retail. So I cover a lot of the startups that are trying to challenge the traditional retail companies. And a lot of those startups are what we call direct-to-consumer companies. So they start by selling just online, uh, and they have tried to position themselves over the years as, you know, they've been able to build a close relationship with customers because they sell only online. Uh, but the key question a lot of them have to face is, okay, when is the time maybe for me to start selling my company's products in other stores? Do we eventually open stores of our own? And how long can we truly stay direct to consumer? Absolutely. So I feel like those are all questions that have long sort of hovered hovered around for many companies, and they came sort of to a head this year specifically. Am I incorrect in that? Yeah, well, it's interesting. We wrote uh, a few stories actually in 2019, I believe, kind of predicting that 2020 would be the year that a lot of these direct-to-consumer startups hit a revenue wall. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea being that there's only so many, you can only generate so much revenue from your own website. Uh, but actually, in 2020, what happened is because of the coronavirus pandemic, you had people who both either had never really bought anything online before, starting to buy more of their products online because they didn't want to go to stores, uh, and also just people buying online more in general. So interestingly, what happened is I talked to some direct-to-consumer startups who said that their sales actually doubled or tripled this year, exceeding their initial growth projections. So it kind of turned a lot of the conventional wisdom on its head this year um, because e-commerce growth accelerated much faster than anyone was predicting. So now the question these companies face is, okay, what is e-commerce activity going to be like next year? Are people going to continue buying online? And does that mean I should focus on my website for longer? So do you think do you think that this phenomenon that happened as a result of the coronavirus, has your reporting borne out that that's going to be a sustainable phenomenon? Do you think that, or was this just sort of a blip and then it's all going to come back to basics where they're going to hit a revenue wall or they're going to have to figure out profitability? Yeah, I think, I do think it's mostly a temporary relief um, because especially if you do continue to sell only online, you know, you have to contend with very high shipping costs um, and also the key challenge to 
ensuring that your business is profitable is to make sure that a lot of these customers who you acquire through something like a Facebook ad or a TV ad, that they keep coming back and buying. Um, And so, you know, that's the key question these companies will have to face next year is can they retain enough customers who bought from them for the first time this year to keep growing and to become profitable? I don't think that a lot of companies will be able to match the growth that they saw this year. But the question is, will they be able to retain enough customers? I think some companies will, but I don't think all companies will be able to. So what we were talking about in 2019 and early 2020 was essentially that we were towards the end of of kind of a bubble, especially when it came to VC funding. Um, do you think that the current sort of situation and the the flipping on its head of the of the economy and the way that people are buying has elongated that bubble? Do you think that companies have been given a longer lifeline? Do you, or do you think that they that they there's still a back to basics happening? Yeah, I'm seeing a couple things here. I think one for consumer startups who are new to the market, um, I think it is harder to raise a lot of money early on. I feel like I'm seeing these newer startups say raise smaller series A or seed rounds than maybe they would have five years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think for some of the later stage companies, you know, it's it's a little too it's a little too early to tell. Um, I mean, one thing you saw this year is um, companies raise later stage companies raise more money from private equity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's something you'll continue to see uh, with some of these direct to consumer companies who are later stage, but don't really have a clear path yet to an IPO that they'll turn more to private equity versus VC funding. Do you think that there's going to be what, what or I guess the question is, what do you think the IPO outlook is? Because uh, there's a really interesting thing happening right now that I'm viewing, which is the tech tech IPOs are are insane, like truly insane to watch the way that they're popping, you know, their valuations going up. But then there have been a lot of big DTC, quote unquote DTC uh, companies that either have been unable to IPO or have not sort of reached the level that people hoped they would. So what do you think is going to happen in, in, in that realm? Yeah, I think a lot of DTC startups are going to try to stay private as long as possible. I don't have any immediate candidates as to (laughs) that will IPO next year. Um, I think if you look at, so Casper IPO'd this year and uh, the reaction to that IPO was kind of lackluster Mm -hmm. um, because they had very high customer acquisition costs. Um, It wasn't really clear if they were doing a good job of retaining their current customers and getting them to buy more of some of their newer product lines. Uh, one direct-to-consumer startup that has done really well in the public market is Peloton. Um, obviously, uh, at-home fitness was a very popular category this year, but they're also able to lock in revenue from existing customers due to their subscription model. So mm-hmm. I think if you have a company that has more of that model, there's a chance that they might do well on the public markets, and those are the type of companies you might see go public. Mm-hmm. So. We're talking about your coverage and what you're looking at, and it focuses a lot on business models and profitability and sort of bottom lines. Are there any other things that you were looking at this year that you thought were specifically interesting or sort of touched on themes that are that are going to be that we're going to be uh, focusing on the year to come? Yeah, one thing I'll be keeping an eye on is as 
people buy more online, that creates an opportunity for a lot of these business-to-business startups that create tools to help companies sell online. Uh, Shopify has been the biggest winner, I think, in all of this. I don't know off the top of my head how much their stock price has gone up this year, but it's been a lot. It's been a lot, yes. Uh, (laughs) And so I think you'll see VCs put more money into those types of startups. And I'm also interested to watch how what new tools Shopify comes out with next year to try to encourage these growing e-commerce companies to turn to Shopify for more parts of their business. Mm-hmm. Do you think Shopify started specifically as, or sort of how it grew was by focusing on the startups mostly and getting these small b- businesses and being a free or freemium model where you know people could buy add-ons. Now as it's getting so big, it's also trying to get bigger retailers. Do you think that that is working out? Have you seen, have you talked with people who have said like, you know, Shopify is the best platform for me, even as a mid-stage to later stage company, or what is sort of the, the environment there? Yeah. Just looking through, um, some recent new customers they've announced, I think that they're focusing on larger companies that want to build more of a director to consumer relationship. So Mm -hmm. say a CPG company that maybe sells its products all in the major grocery stores, but wants to create an e-commerce presence. I think that those are the new, are the types of companies you'll increasingly see Shopify go after rather than say a Target or a Walmart. Uh, I also think uh, you'll see Shopify, and this is something Shopify has talked about, but just, um, in this year, they hired the former GM of Easy uh, to kind of build out a uh, a department that goes after influencers and encourages them to launch their own shops on Shopify. So I think that that is another market that you'll see Shopify go after more in the coming year. Interesting. I think uh, we're going to be talking about influencers more uh, later on, but I wanted to hear a little bit about the other players. So one of the the interesting IPOs that happened um, this year was Big Commerce. They've IPO'd. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they have. Yeah. <laughs> I always, it's hard to remember everything. 2020 was a blur. <laughs> exactly. Um, and they, they've always been a kind of underdog to the other e-commerce platforms. Do you think that companies like that, that people in the business know, but might not have like mainstream recognition, but are still powering a good amount of, of uh, online businesses. Do you think they stand a chance to to grow and potentially become dominant? How do you see the sort of market dynamics in terms of all of the different business-to-business platforms out there? Yeah, I would say that when I, – I would say a couple things. One – you know, the vast majority of the companies I talk to, which are venture-backed, they still launch their stores on Shopify. Uh, there's also this headless commerce trend that's playing out where um, basically there's these new tools that decouple the front end from the back end of uh, e-commerce software. So basically, headless commerce tools allow uh, a company to customize their website more and not just rely on Shopify's tools. So I think what you're going to see is that as companies grow, uh, they're going to have more options in terms of what tools 
do I use to build my website versus just relying on Shopify's tools? You also might see, you know, some companies decide, okay, I want to, once they get to a certain scale, decide I just want to do this in-house entirely. Uh, so I don't know if you'll see companies, you know, flock to one specific Shopify competitor. It's more that these companies have, will have more options than ever before, especially the bigger they get. Interesting. Are there any other big themes that you're keeping an eye out or big stories that either you wrote or are hoping to write in the year to come? Yeah, I think um, just following more the employee dynamics within these uh, fast growing startups. Uh, This was, I think, a tough year for retail workers. Uh, Working in a store has become more stressful than ever before. So how do companies respond to that? How do they try to give retail workers or warehouse workers or customer service workers, uh, how do they get them to feel like they have more of a say in the business and kind of the same stake in the business as, say, a corporate employee? Uh, those are that's a trend I'm going to be watching next year. Do you how do you see that shifting or do you see the the way that corporations or mid-level startups are are considering their their employees is or is it just sort of PR lip service? Yeah, uh, I would say that there is a lot of PR lip service. I think, you know, the the opportunity for startups here is, uh, you know, as retail companies grow and grow to be this employer with like a thousand plus stores, then there there becomes very much a separation between the store workers and the corporate workers. But when you're still a startup, I think there's a lot of opportunity and companies don't take advantage enough of this. But your retail workers, they're the ones who are dealing with your customers day in and day out. They have a lot of valuable insight into what customers don't like, what they do like. So how do startups respond to the feedback that their retail workers give them? Um, How do they ensure retail workers can play a bigger role in things like product development or just improving customer service? Uh, That's something that I would love to see more startups do in 2021. Got it. All right, Anna, this has been so interesting. Um, I I don't want to have you go without uh, putting a little plug in because you you write a, a briefing every week. Is that right? Yes, I do. <laughs> so it's the uh, DTC briefing. It comes out on Fridays, and uh, really, what the uh, we started this briefing this year, and kind of what I focused on is just writing about issues that are top of mind for startup founders. So that's ranged from everything to right now, obviously, shipping delays are top of mind for founders. Um, In the summer, it was about, you know, when is it time to reopen our stores or what does the store of the future look like? Uh, So that is something that will be continuing through 2021. I want to keep writing about topics that are top of mind for startup founders right now. Uh, So I would love to hear from any startup founders out there about what you'd like to see us cover in 2021. Great. Well, thank you so much, Anna, for joining. Yeah, thank you. All right. Hey, Michael, you're up. How's it going? (laughs) It's going okay. So this is Michael Waters. He is a reporter we have at Modern Retail. He is our our latest uh, person to join. And so why don't you just give a little bit of intro? So what do you, you know, what are you covering? Sort of what's your background and, you know, what are you thinking about? 
Yeah. Um, so I've been at modern retail for not quite two months now. And um, my main beat is essentially anything Amazon. And it's hard to even quantify that because Amazon is such a like sprawling empire. <laughs> um, but I think within that, I'm really fascinated by um, like a couple different parts of Amazon's empire, um, especially, you know, like the changing experience of sellers, of workers, and then also the changes um, around how Amazon interacts with the law and regulation around Amazon. Um, that is not exclusive. I will cover anything. So if anyone <laughs> ever has Amazon stories, let me know. <laughs> but I do think those stick out to me, especially because they are so rapidly changing. And I think all three do like have pretty significant impacts for Amazon's future. Um, I mean, for instance, just like looking at the law right now, I mean, we're talking right in this moment in which big tech regulation which has long been a theoretical, actually feels increasingly like it could happen in some capacity. Um, and you see all big tech companies that are, you know, trying to talk about regulation that is not as intense, but are almost sort of accepting that they will be regulated in some way. And um, I think Amazon's a really interesting case study because it hasn't gotten the same attention of Facebook or Google, but, you know, like quietly in the courts and in um, like legislation in states, some of Amazon's liability protections around, you know, if like a third-party seller sells a faulty product on Amazon, that's slowly been chipped away. I mean, and a fascinating part about that also is that Amazon's like fulfillment by Amazon program, which um, helps warehouse and deliver products for sellers and sometimes does even more than that, it is actually making Amazon seem like the actual seller of products that in theory are sold by third parties. And so increasingly Amazon is in the courts being seen as liable for stuff like that, in part because of this FBA program that they've been building out. Can you, do you, is liability the the only sort of court battle that you think or like most direct court battle Amazon faces right now? I think so. I think, I mean, there are tons of potential things that could happen with Amazon, but I think the one that seems most likely to actually crop up and have some sort of impact in 2021 is liability. And the reason I say that is because Amazon itself, and this is kind of a complicated case, but Amazon itself has actually endorsed a version of liability for itself. Um, California has this law that was in session this year and then was later killed, but is likely to be introduced next year as well, that um, essentially would take away a lot of the liability protections that all e-commerce platforms have. And um, that would affect not just Amazon, but eBay, Etsy, everyone else. Um, who is an e-commerce platform. And an interesting thing that Amazon did is they, um, after initially opposing this bill, they turned around and supported it once the bill drafters agreed that it would apply to everyone equally. Um, so not just singling out Amazon, but it would apply to all of its competitors. And I mean, what some commentators say about that is it's basically just because Amazon knows it has deeper pockets to deal with liability than its competitors do. But I mean, the fact that the biggest player in the e-commerce space is behind this bill doesn't mean it's going to pass, but it definitely changes the calculus a lot. And so, um, at least from what I'm seeing, that does seem to be, like, liability does seem to be the area that is least theoretical at this point. Interesting. And so can you just break it down? So it, it, this law that that you're seeing as one of the the more important ones essentially says that Amazon and other platforms like eBay, like Etsy, 
could be liable for a faulty product if they sell it on the platform? What like what are the sort of nuances about it? And can you just sort of explain a little bit further about how FBA fits into that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so yes, it the law essentially does say that it's a little bit complicated because the bill that was introduced, I should just say, was very broadly written and it actually would have regulated more than just e-commerce platforms. Um, although the, the authors of it said it was focused on e-commerce, they wrote a pretty broad version. Um, so just with that aside, the, I'm just going to go with what um, the drafters said they wanted to do, which is, um, yes, it, it would basically treat e-commerce platforms like retailers, um, physical retailers. You know, if Target is selling a product that is faulty or dangerous, causes an injury, for instance, like a battery that catches fire or something like that, Target is liable, even if Target itself is not the manufacturer of that product. Um, and so the logic of the California bill is, according to the authors, that it would treat e-commerce platforms the same way. So if a third party on Amazon's marketplace sells a laptop battery that catches fire, Amazon could be liable for that. Um, and one reason that I think it's interesting that, at least in the current draft, and again, this could change in the next session, so take this all with a grain of salt, but in the current draft, um, Amazon wasn't treated any differently from eBay and Etsy. And that's kind of fascinating because um, Amazon is much closer to a seller than eBay or Etsy or any of its competitors are, in part because of fulfillment by Amazon, FBA, just because Amazon, in a lot of cases, just handles everything for these third-party sellers. I mean, Amazon is the one that is warehousing the products, packaging the products, shipping the products, Sometimes even like setting the pricing based on algorithms, for instance, for third-party sellers. And um, a couple courts and uh, some legislators as well have, you know, pointed out that that looks a lot like a seller. Like they're doing a lot of the work that a seller would. Um, but it is intriguing that in the current draft that Amazon like would not be singled out in that way, even though eBay doesn't have the same um, involvement in the products that its third parties sell. Um, so the, I think that's one reason that Amazon did get behind this particular bill is that FBA is weirdly a liability for it in this space, but mm-hmm. this law did not like single out FBA. It just said all e-commerce platforms. That's really interesting. Um, are there any other, so we have this really gnarly liability thing that likely we'll we'll see developments into it the in the year to come. Are there any other sort of threads or topics on Amazon that you've been covering or that you're going to be covering um, in the coming year? Yes, definitely. One thing I would really love to keep covering, um, and if anyone knows anything about this, always reach out, um, is is essentially just how selling on Amazon has changed. And within that I mean um, just this like massive influx of venture capital into Amazon selling. Um, and so for instance, it, this is, they've been around for a couple of years, but especially this year, there have been a huge surge in, um, these like Amazon seller acquisition companies. They call themselves seller roll-up companies, which I mean, essentially will look at successful products on Amazon, most of which are, you know, number one or number two in their category and will buy them off of third-party sellers, um, you know, they would just transfer the um, the like product code over to these companies. And these companies are creating this like massive portfolio of wow. like top selling Amazon products. Um, and I mean, they've also raised a ton of money. Um, there was a study from Marketplace Pulse, I believe last month, that 
um, showed that so far this year in 2020 alone, all of these companies have raised close to a billion dollars in capital, a billion dollars for the sole purpose of buying up these products that third-party sellers are selling. And, um, you know, like they'll, they'll redesign the page or something, or they're going to um, do fulfillment differently. They'll, they'll like spruce it up. But it is kind of this fascinating bubble that I think is also going to change Amazon selling, third-party selling in some way. And remains to be seen exactly what those ways are. But um, there's, I mean, there's just so much investment in this space all of a sudden. And you see other startups popping up that are um, also putting money towards Amazon sellers. Um, there's a company called Me that is giving um, this short-term venture capital to um, Amazon sellers that are having a lot of success and want to grow a lot. Um, and so you're seeing kind of the tropes of Silicon Valley um, being transferred over to Amazon selling specifically. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I would love to just cover, especially, I mean, what that looks like, is this a bubble that we're seeing? And also for Amazon sellers, I mean, how is that changing the experience? And even like, is that changing the kinds of people who are going to be selling on Amazon? Um, I'm not sure, but it, there are a lot of fascinating parallels with the startup space. And um, I don't think, at least until recently, I don't think we've seen the same degree of desire or, or like need among Amazon sellers to grow at all costs the way that you see with more traditional startups. And I do wonder if that's going to change. Yeah, because I feel like Amazon specifically and its third-party marketplace was the the like was always portrayed as sort of the platonic ideal of being a small online business. Like if you sell a good product, put it on Amazon and then you maybe you'll reach a million dollars in revenue and that's a good solid like small business. And it seems like if there are these bigger entities raising money to scoop them up and then add them to their own portfolio, that completely changes what it means to be a quote unquote entrepreneur on Amazon. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, in the short term, I think some Amazon sellers are grateful for stuff like this. You know, if, I mean, if you're a part-time Amazon seller, you're thinking of quitting selling or something, maybe you have like one really successful product. Um, I mean, previously you would just go cold Turkey and Mm -hmm. now actually, um, sellers who don't really see Amazon as their, or like just selling period as their like main career goal have like a sort of lucrative exit if they can get one of these companies interested. Um, but I do imagine, and I'm not sure about this, but I do imagine that that might be a temporary thing. Um, and it might get harder for some of these like part-time, small-time sellers um, to break in down the line. Because like you said, yeah, just like this space has changed and it's become so professionalized. Interesting. Uh, is there anything else that you've been either keeping tabs on or paying attention to that you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, my <laughs> the beat that I've especially carved out for myself, I guess, is I'm just fascinated by how retailers are using their employees and um, essentially trying to turn their employees into small-time influencers. And different retailers are doing this in different ways. And certainly, it's only a small number that are doing this so far. But um, it is this new approach to just like what it means to work in retail that there are companies. And when I say companies, I mean, namely, um, I think Duncan and Walmart are the big ones um, who are essentially trying to get their employees to, you know, post content from the job and like behind the scenes of a Dunkin' Donuts kitchen or something like that and show this, um, you know, this image of what it's like to work for these companies with a tinge of like rose-colored glasses, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that's just fascinating, not only because it changes what it means to be a worker in retail, um, 
none of these programs are required, but it it is a fundamental change if there are a lot of employees who are being encouraged in the case of Walmart, um, as I reported on recently, they get monetary rewards if they have a successful post um, in order to, yeah, I mean, just post from the job. And I do also think it's an interesting timing because I do think right now we're seeing how, like, people are increasingly paying attention to the culture inside different companies. And I think you see increasingly, um, I mean, people like base their buying decisions off of, oh, is this company like doing good? Is this company treating its employees well? And I do think this dovetails with that in an intriguing kind of way, which is at this moment that even buyers are scrutinizing companies to some degree. Um, These same companies are encouraging their employees to, you know, post on their behalf and like make um, like TikTok dance challenge videos or something (laughs) um, to make like working at Walmart look like a fun paradise. Maybe it is for some people, but I mean, it definitely isn't for others as well um, as you've as we've like seen in previous reporting. And I do think it'll just be interesting to see to what degree that takes off and um, how other retailers enter this space, because we are reaching this phase in which employees are being seen not only for their work value, but also for their like social media value and their like small time publicity value, um, like with micro influencers and such. Do you think that the retailers are using this as a recruiting tool or a marketing tool or sort of a, a PR cushioning tool in case bad press? Like, what is the value of, of sort of telling their employees, hey, say, you know, videotape yourself, put it on TikTok and be happy, but, you know, quote unquote authentic? Yeah, I mean, so there's the thing that the retailers will tell you and then there's what I think. So let's like <laughs> acknowledge the difference. I think the retailers I've spoken to always frame this as we just want to give employees a voice. And there, I think there is definitely validity to that. Um, and we, Modern Retail wrote about another case with Sherwin-Williams recently where um, there was a Sherwin-Williams employee who had this like very popular TikTok account in which he literally just mixed paint, um, said nothing bad about Sherwin-Williams, but was just mixing paint. And um, like people were kind of captivated just by watching that. Um, and he was fired in part, he said, um, because of his work on TikTok and because it violated the company's social media policy. So, I mean, if you talk to these retailers, what they'll say is we do want to give our employees a voice and we do want to give them, you know, the tools to share like their make their paint mixing on the job or something like that. Um, however, <laughs> I do not think that's the full story. Um, and I, I do think, I mean, to the questions you asked, I do think it's a little bit of everything. Um, I do think there is definite PR value in this. Um, I mean, there just can't not be. If you are looking at a company that has been criticized for how it treats its workers and then you see lots of videos of its workers, you know, having fun on the job, um, I I think that impacts how consumers are going to see that company. Um, And it is, I mean, who knows exactly how all these posts are come up with, but it certainly, the end result is that um, it, it makes customers think more positively if these posts are positive about these companies. Um, and then another interesting thing that I don't believe other companies are doing, but Walmart specifically is, is sort of using their employees as marketing, not just for Walmart itself, but um, also for products that Walmart sells. So, I mean, Walmart so far has done a, two social campaigns um, with its employee influencers around, um, yeah, just different products that you can get at Walmart. And 
these companies, one of which is Funko Pop that sells um, like action figures. Um, they sponsor these campaigns. And then Walmart's team of employee influencers um, make posts about the product and about getting people to buy it. And um, in the Funko Pop case, um, the top 10 posts, I believe, were eligible for $200 in rewards each. Um, and then they, Walmart's doing another campaign with a hoverboard company that I believe is called Hover One, and the top post for that gets $1,000. Um, and so that's kind of an interesting wrinkle as well, which is that companies are not just promoting the culture of these companies and, you know, changing how consumers think about them and possibly bringing in employees, but they're also promoting products that these companies sell sponsored by the brands that own those products, if that makes sense. Um, and so I think those are sort of the two ends of that spectrum. Wow. That's so fascinating. All right. Well, Michael, this has been really interesting. Before I let you go, we're going to be, or you're going to be launching a briefing uh, sometime in the next year. Do you want to talk a little bit about it? <laughs> um, I Yes, I I suppose I am. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know too much to say about it. I mean, it'll just be focusing on Amazon, right? Yeah, it'll be Amazon focused. That's true. Um, <laughs> we're, we're still working out exactly what it's going to look like, but... Um, Hopefully it'll be like an approachable way of talking about Amazon and rounding up Amazon news and um, we'll find ways to make it interesting. Great. I'm sure we will. All right. That's all the time we have. This has been such a fascinating view into both the year that we've had and the year to come. Although I will say that if 2020 has proven anything, it's that any predictions we have can go out the window in the blink of an eye. Um, But with that, I want to thank you guys for listening to this podcast. And I hope you'll continue listening to the episodes we have in the coming weeks and months. Thanks so much. 